as you know by now, I am a teacher. And my wife, I've been married to for 10 years. She's also a, a kindergarten teacher. And we are involved in a Christian school on the south side of Atlanta. And having children and being concerned about how they're to be raised and taught, um, early on I kind of studied different models of education. And one that I particularly liked was called the classical Christian education model. And it goes back to the Middle Ages and where the Christian church had such a dominant influence in Europe. And the whole education is based on how really children develop, but also subjects that God has worked in creation. And I remember one illustration I saw of it was an engraving from the Middle Ages, somewhere around the 12th century. And it was pretty unique because it had seven ladies. And they were around this circle. And they were all standing. And one of these ladies, she was playing a harp. And she represented the, the science of music. And there was another lady who was looking up at the stars and observing them. And she represented the science of astronomy. There was one lady who was standing and she was writing with her quill on a parchment and she represented the art of grammar. And so if you look at classical education and the way it was set up, there were seven basic subjects. There were three verbal arts of communication and they, they were grammar and logic and rhetoric. And then there were four sciences and these sciences included arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. And these were mathematical sciences of the quadrivium, the first one being the trivium. And so they had seven ladies teaching different, sub these different subjects of the classical education model. And yet, they were on the outside of the circle, standing. If you looked at the inside of the engraving, in the inner circle, there was a lady, a queen on a throne. And she was seated. And she represented a subject herself, that of theology. And according to the old classical model of education, theology was the queen of the sciences. And there are lots of reasons that theology is the queen of the sciences. Theology is the doctrine of God, of, of studying how he's made us, how he's made the world, of who he is, and his plan of salvation, and the plan for the church, and all that. All that's encompassed in theology. But why is it the queen of the sciences? We, in today's world, we like to divide our subjects up. We, we have our subject of math, and that's the, the subject of numbers, and addition, and subtraction, and multiplication, and then you get into higher forms of math, like algebra and calculus. But we kind of segregate it all over to its own little field over here. Then we have English. And, you know, you read writings, you learn how to write poetry, write an essay, you learn basic skills of grammar and sentence structure and all that. And that's its own compartment over here. Then we have history and the study of mankind and what they've gone through and all that kind of stuff in a compartment all by itself. And then you have science 
and, and all that. And we compartmentalize it and we separate it. But the truth of the matter is, all truth is connected. And it has as its source the God who's created this world and all the truths contained in it. So, ultimately, the centralized subject should be theology, which ties all these other subjects together. We should learn English, but it's because God has given us verbal communication and the ability to, to read His Word and understand who He is and understand and communicate with each other. We, le- we learn math because God has created this world with order. He's designed it with certain scientific laws, and, and that also ties together with science. And it ties together with history and all this together. And theology ultimately is the driving focus of a real education, a true education. Because that's what God told us in Deuteronomy chapter 6. That we should teach our children from the time they rise up to the time they go to bed to, to know and love the Lord. And all these other subjects are good and they are to be taught, but they flow out from God. And so it's a good thing to have our focus on God in our studies. All truth is tied together and finds its union in God. Well, if the academy back in the Middle Ages was able to figure this out, and rightly so, I believe, then we as Christians should know that all of our worship really is focused in on God and should derive our very our praise and our worship and our thoughts of God from what he's revealed about himself. Theology should be the driving force of our worship, of our evangelism, of our, our daily Christian living. You think about the books of the Bible. When Paul wrote a letter to the Colossians or when he wrote a letter to the Romans, did he start out telling them what to do? Now, if you read those letters, the first half of his epistles are always dedicated to theology, telling us who God is, who we are before God, and how we are rightly related to God. And then the last half or the last quarter or the last third of his epistles deal with more practical matters of how we worship, how we get along with other people, and how we treat people and and get along with our marriages and all that kind of stuff. But why is that last and theology first? Because everything flows out of our knowledge of God and who He is. It should be supreme. The problem with today's church, in many cases, in evangelicalism today is, we don't put God first. We put man. We put ourselves And this is reflected in the way we worship because worship services are designed to please us, to make us have a certain feeling or a certain encounter with God. And so you you read the words of the praise choruses that are sung and they're about how I feel about Jesus. There's nothing wrong with having these feelings about Jesus. We should, as Christians, love our Lord. How precious is the name of Christ to us. But all of that flows from our knowledge of God and who He is. If we put our feelings first, we're looking at the effect and making it the cause 
Our feelings are not the cause of our worship. God is the cause. He is the one that we are to be engaged with in our worship. And that's the reason our hymns need to reflect who God is. And if that causes us to, to be overwhelmed with worship, that's what it's intended to do. But it's, it's not driven by the feelings it produces. That's what it produces. It's driven by our, what we know about God. Charles Spurgeon, and most of you are probably familiar with his name. He was a great Baptist preacher in the 19th century in England. Most people recognize he's one of the greatest preachers ever. Um, he had much effect for the kingdom of God. But when he was starting out in the ministry, he was starting out in a church called New Park Street Baptist Church. And at New Park Street, in his very first sermon, these are the very first words he starts out with. And this is a little bit of, of a paragraph, but I'd like to read it to you because of the impact that it has. It has been said by some, one, that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God, is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in the contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them, we feel a kind of self-content, and we go away with the thought, Behold, I'm wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he's like a wild donkey's colt. And with the solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. We shall be obliged to feel, great God, how infinite art thou. What worthless worms are we. Now, reading that first sermon of Spurgeon in his first pulpit ministry, I was thinking, what a great way to start off a ministry with an elevated view of God. Because if a ministry is not about lifting up God before the people, then it will never be a God-blessed ministry. God must be lifted up to the people, and the people must come to adore their Lord. If true worship is to occur, it's because they see God, and they love Him for who He is and what He's done. And we see this in these psalms. The next several psalms are called the Hallelujah Psalms. Because in Hebrew they begin, Hallelujah. What does that mean? We hear it often. Well, Hebrew translated into English is praise the Lord. So when we hear the words Hallelujah, 
Basically, that's the Hebrew word for praise the Lord. And Psalm 111 begins that way. Psalm 112 begins that way. Psalm 113 begins that way. And then skipping a psalm, Psalm 115 ends with hallelujah. Psalm 116 ends with it. Psalm 117 ends with hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So these psalms were specifically meant for what? Worship. For praising the Lord. So if we want to know how to worship the Lord, how to give Him praise, what a better place to start with than these very psalms. Another interesting thing about Psalm 111 is it's an acrostic psalm. I'm trying to think of a good thing to connect it with. I know old primer books that people used to learn to read from would have this, in which they would give the alphabet, and then they would give this a sentence for each letter as you go through to learn the alphabet. Well, that's what is being done here by the, the writer in Hebrew. He's got the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, and that starts off the first verse. And he goes through 22 verses. We, we've got 10 verses in our English, but in the original Hebrew there were 22 lines, each starting with a subsequent letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And he does that in Psalm 111, and we think the same psalmist wrote 112 as well because it's an acrostic psalm as well. Two different subjects. Why would you begin with an acrostic anyways? It doesn't help us in English, but in Hebrew it would help us to memorize the psalm, right? And so the, the, the Jews, the, the Israelites, the Hebrews would have been memorizing these praise worship songs that they would have sung at the temple. And this was a good memory device. If you read Psalm 111, it's all about how great God is in His work. We praise Him for His works that He's done for His people. If you read Psalm 112, which immediately follows, which I think is written as a companion psalm, it's about the work of the godly, those that God has set apart, those that He's called, those that He's saved, what do their lives reflect? They reflect who God is, which we learned about in Psalm 111. So, if you look at the very last verse of Psalm 111, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. How are we to be wise? How are we to have a good understanding? We fear the Lord. We revere Him. We lift Him up. And we get too flippant sometimes with our worship. We need to be reverent. That doesn't mean we don't have joy. It doesn't mean that we don't have happiness and we don't have cheer when we worship the Lord. But it's a reverential joy. It, it is treating Him as holy. And everywhere we see in the Old Testament, when there's a vision of the Lord before His saints, they always tremble and they, and they shake. They worship. But it's reverent and not flippant. And so, naturally, the person who fears the Lord does the good works of the godly that we find in Psalm 112. Well, let's first observe in this passage the works of God are great. The works of God 
are great. We see that in verses 1 through 4. Let's read those four verses one more time. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. If you look back at Psalm 110, a lot of psalms have a title to them. This one says, A Psalm of David. But Psalm 11, you'll notice, does not have a title. It's because it's one of these psalms that were written by an anonymous psalmist, and they were designed for worship. They begin with the hallelujah, the praise the Lord. And that's what the psalmist is telling the people of Israel to do. It's a command. Praise the Lord. Give his name glory. Lift him up. Proclaim the majesty of the name of the Lord Most High. But the psalmist is not content to give that command to the congregation, but he's going to take the lead in this worship. He immediately follows and says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. So as we tell each other, Praise the Lord! We need to be the first ones to be willing to praise the Lord and give Him thanks. And what do we give Him thanks for? For who He is and what He has done. Notice it's not some half-hearted praise the Lord, uh, thank Him for, for His blessings. It is wholehearted worship. He loves the Lord and He praises Him with His whole heart. There's nothing held back. Now understand, we Reformed Christians, sometimes we are a little bit afraid of exuberant worship because of some of the churches we've been in and some of the, the things that we've seen in our past where people are all about the experience and they get carried away and basically is to produce feelings and emotions. It becomes some sort of emotionalism. This stirring up. And the music is designed to do that. And the words are designed to do that. But it's all about the experience. And so we're wary of that. But just because we're wary of some of the bad trends we see towards that doesn't mean that our worship is devoid of emotion. We as Christians, if we have the head knowledge, but our hearts don't get into it, and we don't love the Lord, and we're not passionate about worship, then our faith is a dead intellectualism. It is head knowledge. But it's devoid of life. Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorite pastors and theologians to read, he was around the 1700s during the time of the Great Awakening. And if 
you know anything about that revival, the churches of the Puritans had become dead in New England. And they had drifted away from their first love. And many of the people were unconverted. And yet God had blessed Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and, and others of that stripe to preach the Word of God boldly. And he led a revival through that preaching. The results of that are recorded here in Jonathan Edwards' own words. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service, intent in public worship, and eager to drink in the words of the minister. When God sends revival, when he stirs up his people, you can't keep them from coming to worship. You can't keep them from assembling with other believers to praise the Lord. Jonathan Edwards knew that even though our intellectual knowledge of God may be the priority because we have to know God in order to love Him, you can't divorce the two. You can't have a love with, of God without knowing who He is. And knowing who He is as He's presented in the Bible. You have to have doctrine. You have to have scripture. You have to have revelation. Otherwise, it's wild fanaticism. You have to have truth and spirit in true worship. What did Jesus tell the woman at the well? There's coming a day in which my people will worship me, not in this temple or not in that temple or this place or that place, but true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, both the head and the heart. Now, in reading a biography that I've read over about Jonathan Edwards, he was an inten intensely passionate, private person in his worship of God. He'd go walking in the woods or riding his horse, and he would take a, a piece of paper as he rode, and he would write thoughts he had about God and pin them to his jacket so that when he got back to his house, he, he, he could contemplate those things or write them into his sermons or, or that sort of thing. But he was known to just weep over his love for the Lord. And so he was deeply moved. But hearing his words just then, the assemblies were then beautiful and the congregation was alive in God's service. He knew that we are to have private worship. We're to love the Lord in our closets. But there's a specialness when the body of Christ is gathered to worship. Especially here on the Lord's Day. The Spirit takes the words of the preacher. He takes the hymns. He takes the prayers that are offered. And He unites us in a special communion with the Lord. Now I'm not talking about mysticism. Because mysticism can be very dangerous. Because what Christian mysticism does is it wants the experience apart from the Word of God. But there is a sense in which the Spirit works through the Word of God when God's people gather together that we cannot experience alone. Do we worship God alone? Yes, we do. When we go out 
and enjoy a quiet walk in the woods or along a lake. Enjoy God's creation and say, praise the Lord. But do not let that be a substitute for gathering with God's people. God blesses the assembling of his people together in a way that he's promised to be with us forever. And we do not experience that alone. Corporate worship is important in the company of the upright in the congregation. The problem is we've been influenced so much by romanticism and individualism and the whole experiential relationship of the last century and a half in our, our worship songs and in our, our ideas about worship and all that. We need to get back and say how beautiful it is to be in the congregation of the Lord together with his people. There's a special quality here, a special blessing. Notice also that it's not just a congregation of anyone. What does he say? In the company of the upright in the congregation, worship for God's people is for that very fact that they are God's people. Unbelievers do not participate in true worship. They cannot. They do not know their God. Does that mean we, we don't want unbelievers to come to our churches? Certainly we want them to come to our churches. But our worship is not designed to appeal to a dead person. Our worship is designed to reflect the glory of the Lord and stir up his people to, to worship and love him and, and, and adore him and live for him. God uses that worship to save the lost, by the way. Because a lot of the lost people that God is actually opening their eyes, they want something real. They don't want the, the fakeness of the world around them. And if we design our worship to appeal to that fakeness, then there are not going to be true converts as a result. They may come for a time, but they vanish after a time when they, they find something to, to scintillate their senses more somewhere else. What they are desiring, if they are truly being awakened by the Spirit of God, is true worship of the true God. And when they see that, and the Holy Spirit is blessing that, that is a draw that no amount of man-centered worship can do. God blesses what he commands. We should desire our worship according to what the scriptures give us. Our worship is to have prayer, is to have hymn singing, is to have preaching and teaching and reading of the word. We're to have the ordinances. We're to be faithful to those things. We don't have to come up with our own methods to get the lost saved. God will save the lost if we are faithful to worship him and proclaim him the way he says he's to be proclaimed. Well, what reason do we have to worship God given here in Psalm 111? It's given in, in, starting in verse 2. Great are the works 
of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. We are to worship God because great are his works. Now, I have heard someone in the past say, actually, we don't worship God for what he does. We worship God for who he is. And I understand the sentiment of that. Because if we worship God solely for what he does, then it's all about what he does for me, right? I'm only going to worship God as long as he's blessing me, as long as he's giving me a good life, a good job, a good marriage, good kids, and a vacation, and a good retirement, and all that, good health. That becomes the priority. So we worship God for who he is, first and foremost. But we cannot read through the scriptures without seeing this exhortation over and over again. We worship God because great are his works. He has done great things for us, his people. So we worship him for his works as well as who he is. Because what are his works? They reflect who he is. God is going to be consistent in doing with what he is in his character and personhood. Verse 2 says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. What are some of the works of the Lord? We're reading this psalm and reading other psalms. We know part of his works is his works of creation. The beauty of the created world around us should inspire us to worship. As we go out and we see the sun shining and see a beautiful sunrise or sunset with all the colors, the, the pinks and the oranges and the purples. And as we see this time of year, uh, the, the spring and the flowers and the green grass growing and all that, those are things that should cause us to say, what a great and good God we have. He's so wise. He's so powerful. He's set at order the things of this universe from the, the, the highest peak to the smallest atom. God has done these things. He deserves to be praised. Romans 1, 19-20 states, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We know God's wisdom. We know His power. We know His strength. And we know His glory because we see it in the created order around us. Verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. These very words were carved in Latin in a laboratory at Cambridge University because they knew in the 19th century that the stuff they were studying in that chemistry laboratory were great works of the Lord. Well, they rebuilt one back in the 1970s, the, the same laboratory, and they carved the same words in English. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Verses 3 and 4 state, Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious 
and merciful. As we study God's creation, as we study his works, we are filled with the knowledge of the glory and the power and the wisdom of God. But according to verses 3 and 4, we also, as we study his great works, see the righteousness of God that endures forever. We see that the Lord is gracious and merciful. And part of that we reflected on in the Bible study. God sends us the rain. It causes the crops to grow. It replenishes the earth. We see his goodness in that. But it even goes deeper than that in creation. When we think about the good gifts of the earth, and we eat food, we need food to live, to replace nutrients in our bodies that our bodies need to survive. But God could have just given us a blob of food that had no sight, comeliness to it, no, no smell to it, and no taste to it. And it still could have nourished our bodies. We see God's grace and goodness in the very flavors of the foods that we eat, and the smells of the roses, and, and, the, and the, the sights of a sunset. These are all God's good gifts. The colors that we see all around us. I love Turner Classic movies. But all those movies are black and white. And I still love them. But it's a wonderful thing to be able to see The Wizard of Oz in the colors that were incorporated into that movie. And seldom do we think these are things that God has given us to enjoy and to cause us to praise the Lord. Well, second, notice that the goodness of God's works can be seen in the things that he's fashioned. Not just the greatness of the works of God, but that the works of God are good. Look at verses 5 through 8. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. You don't really notice this in our English translations, but if you read this in the original Hebrew, there's a verb tense change. Verses 1 through 4 are in the present tense. They are God's enduring creation and his work every day in, in making the rain to come and the sun to shine and all that. But in Hebrew, verses 5 through 8 are in the past tense, denoting something that God has done, particularly for his people. And so if you read that with this in mind, the Israelites, as they read this psalm or sang this song, they would have been thinking about things that God had done that was good for their people in the past. For instance, it says he provides or provided food for those who fear him. When the Israelites were coming out of Egypt and they were going into the wilderness, 
They were wondering how they were going to survive, and yet God opened up the rocks to give them water to drink. He sent down manna from heaven to feed their bellies. And when they complained about that being the same old thing every day, he gave them quail to eat. So God provided food for his people. He remembered his covenant forever. He established a covenant with Abraham to make a great nation. He established a covenant with Moses and the people of Israel at Mount Sinai that he would be their God and he would lead them and give them his law. And this is what the people of God always turned back to, that God remembered his covenant. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. When Joshua led the people of Israel across the Jordan River and it opened up to allow them to go across on dry land, and then the walls of Jericho fell, and then the sun stood in the, the midday sky and allowed the Israelites to conquer the Canaanites, what was God doing for his people? He was giving them the inheritance that he promised their father Abraham. The work of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. His law that he gave to the people of Israel, the word of God, it could be counted on. It was true. It was good. It was trustworthy. It never failed. And God said his word would never pass away. Not even one jot or tittle would would go away. It would endure forever. God's people can depend upon the scriptures. But then in the very end of the psalm, he gives the work that is the most good to the people. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. So what is this gift of God that he gives that's so good to his people? He redeems them. We hear the word redemption a lot in church. What does it mean to redeem? What is the the meaning of that word? Well, it means to buy back something that was lost, so that was given up. And we know what that means today. If you come into the financial hardships and you need to have a little bit of cash, you may go to a pawn shop and, and take a family heirloom or something and, and, and hawk it, and they give you some money. And then when you get better in your financial situation, you can go buy and redeem it. You can buy it back. Well, the people of Israel knew about this firsthand because they could get into some serious trouble with dry years and all that kind of stuff and not have any food to feed their families, and they could indenture themselves as servants for seven years. Or they could sell their family property to someone else, the land of their forefathers. Well, sometimes there was a kinsman redeemer who had some money, and he could redeem that indentured servant back out of servitude, or he could buy back the family's property and restore their possessions. And that was a great thing for them to do. Well, God redeemed his people often. 
Where were they initially? They were in Egypt. Severe bondage, groaning as servants of Pharaoh, making bricks and being persecuted. And yet God sent Moses to redeem them out of the land of Egypt. Later, much later when they transgressed God's law, they found themselves in captivity in Babylon. And yet God redeemed his people from Babylon. So God was always doing that. He even made a a picture of this with the prophet Hosea. Hosea married this woman who was of ill repute, and she committed immorality, and she sold herself into that. And Hosea went and followed her and redeemed her out of that, bought her out of that, to show what God did for his people who did not deserve it. Well, I do think the English translation of it in the present tense is perfectly fine because in applying it to our lives today, he does all of these things. You, you think about this. Going back to feeding us. As God's people today, one of the things I prayed for at the very beginning was to feed us, for God to feed us. We need spiritual food. We need Christ, who's the bread of heaven. But we also need to be fed spiritually from his word so that we would not be poor, shriveled up, weak Christians, but mature in our faith and grow in in the grace of Christ. He establishes his covenant with us, this new covenant, which is better than the covenant established with Moses because he takes his law and he writes it on our hearts. He gives us hearts of flesh and place of those hearts of stone and he writes his law that we know God. Every member of the covenant people of God today, we know him as our Lord and Savior. And that is something to praise the Lord for. He gives us the inheritance of the nations. First of all, he brings in people from every tribe and and nation and tongue on this earth to be a part of his people. Look at this congregation. We're evidence of that, right? We're from all different kinds of people. And yet God has brought us together to worship and praise the Lord. But there's a greater fulfillment of this. Just as he promised Abraham a land, and ultimately Hebrews 11 says Abraham was not trusting solely in a physical land. He was looking to a heavenly country. That same inheritance comes to us. God has promised us an inheritance with the saints of light and glory. This is not our home. Georgia is not my home. Texas is not your home. We are pilgrims. We are strangers in the land. But we have a home in glory that Christ has prepared for his people. We have that inheritance, and God has promised it to us. He's given us his Bible. It's trustworthy. We can count on it. Our salvation, our eternities are based on trusting what God has presented in this Bible. And most of all, he has sent his son to be our kinsman redeemer. By paying the price of his own precious blood, he has bought for himself a people. 
And we belong to that people today. And if that is not worthy of praise, I don't know what else is. Today, if you have been bought by the blood of Christ, you can fear the Lord and worship Him in reverence. And this is the beginning of all wisdom and knowledge. And it's what's required for us to be godly. Without this, there is no godliness. So thank God that he redeemed you and bought you out of that life of slavery to sin and darkness and death and Satan. He has brought you into the kingdom of light to serve his son. Verse 10 reads, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. If we are truly to worship the Lord, if we are truly to have godly wisdom, it requires us to fear the Lord. It requires us to to know the Lord and to be born into His kingdom. That's only something that God can do. He gives us birth. He redeems us from the kingdom of darkness. He brings us into the kingdom of His Son, that of the light, He gives us new birth. He gives us a new heart that desires to love Him and to worship Him and desires to be in corporate worship together with the saints to give a foretaste of glory to our hearts on this earth. So in conclusion, I want to ask you, do you know of this worship, this glorious, true, devoted worship that God creates in the hearts of those who fear Him? Because if you do not, it may be because you do not know him. But perhaps God is using this psalm and the words of this man, this frail man before you, to awaken you to a need to come to Christ. And maybe he's drawing you to that faith in Christ Come to him. This may be the day of your salvation. And you may join in the inheritance of the saints one day. And because of that, you can now worship the Lord in truth and in spirit. Brothers and sisters, if you're already in the kingdom of God, if he's already redeemed you out of that life of sin and suffering and all that, and has brought you into service to his son, Jesus Christ, then rejoice, and I pray that this will cause you to have a new found worship in your hearts and fear of the Lord. And may we go forward and praise the Lord and proclaiming His praise to all the people around us. May God be praised. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we do pray for you to forgive our weak attempts to worship you. In our frailty, we will never worship you as you deserve to be worshipped. But we're thankful that you are, are gracious and righteous and merciful. That you're the one to save us and not ourselves. You're the one to create worship within our hearts. And we can't drum this up on our own. But Lord, if we are to truly worship you... You give us a true and reverential fear of you. So, Lord, please cause us to fear you as we ought.
We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.